Welcome to the Canadian Orthodox Podcast, a show devoted to the exploration of the Christian faith in all of its mystery and diversity within the unique intersections of the Canadian context. Today's episode is a conversation I recorded earlier in the spring with Jeremy Duncan. Jeremy is the lead pastor at Kensington Commons Church in Calgary, Alberta, and has also conducted academic research on nonviolent readings of the scripture, specifically the Revelation of John, as mediated through the work of the French thinker René Girard. In this conversation, Jeremy walked us through some of the key ideas of Girard and explored some of the compelling implications of his work for the life and thought of the Canadian church in the 21st century, covering such things as, as the reading of scripture, the understanding of salvation, and the embodiment of the good news carried by the community of faith. Jeremy is an incredibly thoughtful and articulate person, and I, I think he does a really good job not only of making the ideas of Gerard accessible to a new audience, but also integrating them in meaningful ways within the community that he is a part of. I'm really excited to open up this conversation to you guys, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on uh, on our podcast today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It should be kind of fun. Maybe to start, um, let's go through some introductions to uh, introduce you to our audience, kind of uh, who you are, what you do, um, what's been the best quarantine show on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my name is Jeremy Duncan. I'm uh, here in Calgary, Alberta, uh, originally from Toronto, but I've been here in Calgary for 15, 15 years now. So this is sort of home for us. Um, my wife and I are here. We have two kids, uh, both adopted, uh, actually just adopted a little girl last year uh, in the middle of COVID. So that, that's been an interesting wow. ride for us. Uh, we've got a dog and, and uh, here in the city. And then uh, I work for a church here in town called Commons Church that uh, I actually started almost seven years ago now. So that's been wow. uh, most of my focus for the last few years anyway. What was the best quarantine show in the midst of this past year? Man, best question. I mean, definitely, it's got to be Ted Lasso. I mean, that show was just so charming and delightful. Like, I mean, usually I think I watch things that are darker and edgier, except that show was just so much fun. It was hilarious. Every character had a just a just a really redemptive character arc to it. I loved it. It was great. I, I'm excited for season two. That's beautiful. It was um, for us. My wife actually. I mean, COVID was a was a crazy crazy situation for us because at the very front end of it, my wife was in Honduras on a teaching trip. And so then we, like, I, I was down in Honduras to visit her for a little bit because it was an extended two-month trip. And then I I left when everything was normal. And then when I came back, I was in the midst of the toilet paper wars. And then the borders shut down. And so we spent two weeks where she was stranded in the country and until we could get a repatriation flight. And so when we got home we were like the need for a quarantine show was something that was truly escapist in the in the in the fullest sense and so tiger king was uh tiger king was a beautiful solution i, I did actually watch through tiger king I, it took a while like people were talking about it for months and then i finally mm. finally gave in and watched it so yeah so now that we all need to outdo each other with covid stories but our thing was we adopted our daughter a month before covid hit oh, but uh she was born uh, 12 weeks premature with with some complications. So we brought her home in February and they put us into full-on quarantine because she was so vulnerable when she came home. 
So we had been living quarantine life for about a month and then all of a sudden COVID hit. So we just sort of rolled into that and we've been rolling through it for the rest of the year now. So this is life now. This is life. This is life. Um, Maybe tell us a bit about Commons Church, kind of um, maybe how you got involved and um, what you love or find unique about the community that you're involved in. Uh, Originally came to Calgary in 2004. And that was uh, sort of restarting my career in terms of uh, ministry and church world. I had worked in a church in Toronto, and I had gotten out of ministry. I was mm. doing other things and had an invitation from a church here in Calgary to sort of start again and, and reinvent some of what I thought was uh, lacking or beautiful about that role. And I ended up working mm. there for 10 years. It was a, a great run, had great experiences at a church called Westside King's Church. Uh, but during that 10 years, I was sort of formulating ideas about what I thought about church and um, what, I, what I thought, you know, a, a Christ-centered community could look like. And Westside gave me lots of opportunity to experiment with that and try things. But after 10 years, I, I sort of realized, okay, I've deconstructed things. You know, some, the, the way I think about it is like I had deconstructed everything. All the Lego was on the ground. And then it was either the question of whether... I was going to be cynical and I was going to walk away from sort of organized church and religion, or I was going to start to build something out of those pieces. Mm. And that's really what Commons was, was taking all the ideas that I experimented with, um, you know, and and really imagining what kind of community would I put together. Um, The beautiful thing about anytime you start formulating community is, once I had those ideas and I started putting them into practice, new people came and they joined and they started adding their perspective on it. And Mm. seven years later, Commons is very different than what I imagined seven years ago. But those sort of core animating ideas are still there. And it's it's more beautiful and vibrant and and all of that than than I could have imagined. So Mm. that's that's how I got into it. That's how I started it. Lots of people have come, uh, Commons, pre-COVID, we used to run five services on a Sunday, grew really quickly. A lot of people came and got involved, and that was a lot of fun. But in terms of what I find really beautiful is the sort of um, random corners of Christian experience that we've collected people from at Commons. Um, A lot of people who uh, probably grew up around Christianity, but at some point consciously chose to step away from it. Mm. Uh, not just sort of lapsed, but consciously chose, like, this isn't working for me anymore. And I think we were able to provide for them um, new language and new practice to put into their life sort of the core ideas that they always felt were important about Jesus, but were maybe too clouded or too muddied by the church experiences they had had in more traditional evangelical settings. Mm. And so to see people sort of come back and say, okay, this is this is what I always knew was important, but now I've got language for it, or now I've got a practice for it, has been a, a really um, gratifying thing, because I think that's, that's what I was looking for. Mm. And then we've got this whole group of people that um, are sort of part of that Gen Z uh, post-Christian world who are coming into the Jesus story quite fresh. I mean, obviously in Canada, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not. You, there's we're still some of the, the air that we breathe. Uh, mm. But they're coming to it without a lot of preconceptions about um, how a Christian is supposed to think politically mm. or to think about hot-button issues. And they're just looking to Jesus as a as a guide for how to do life and find a way through life. And those people have been a real blessing because um, they've been able to to jump into the community and add their perspective and, and move along without having to 
um, maybe deconstruct some of the, the frames that they, some of us were given, you know, a decade ago or something. So that, that's mm. what I find really beautiful is people coming back, people jumping in for the first time, um, and, and learning from those people too. I mean, sometimes people who are coming for the first time have these wild and beautiful perspectives on, on who Jesus was and how Jesus leads us. So that's been really cool. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Anyone who's who's come in contact with Commons has has likely heard the phrase, we're completely fascinated with this complex and beautiful collection of texts we call the Bible, um, but we worship Jesus. I was wondering, could you could you speak to that a little bit in terms of um, its implications on the the intellectual and the spiritual life of your community and kind of the way that you are approaching the wrestling with with scriptures or with the gospel? Yeah, I mean, you know, that phrase... Um, which is sort of, you know, in our journals and on our about page and stuff is really, um, you know, instructive to how we're trying to shape community. So the values we, we talk about at Commons are intellectually honest, spiritually passionate, Jesus at the center. Um, what you just read is, is essentially us pointing towards that third value, which is actually our grounding one, which is Jesus at the center. And I think when you say, you know, Jesus is at the center of what we do, that every church could sort of like check that box and say, yeah, of course, we're, we're Christian, it's in our name. For us, what we're trying to say with that is, is Jesus is a hermeneutic. So mm. we don't worship the Bible. We don't uh, read the Bible literally. We don't treat the Bible as if it's, you know, inerrant or magical or um, that it appeared in history without any context or shaping. Um, mm. we, we do, we are very orthodox Christian in the sense of we do believe that Jesus is that. Jesus is the divine in human history. Jesus is the closest we'll ever come to understanding God. But the Bible is the text that orients us toward Jesus and points us toward Jesus. So mm. when we're reading or when we're teaching on scripture, because it's a, it's a beautiful collection of texts, it's, it's, it's lasted these thousands of years because um, different cultures, different times, different peoples have all found wisdom and meaning in it. Mm -hmm. All of that wisdom and meaning points us to the person of Jesus. And so the language we'll use is when we come across a passage in, uh, you know, like, like the revelation of St. John or, you know, some of the violence of the Hebrew scriptures, our goal is not systematics where we try to take this verse and we take Jesus and we find the middle ground. Our goal is always to say, well, this points us to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus is who we're following. The way of Jesus is what we're trying to live out in our lives. So how, through the lens of Jesus, do we go back and make sense of these difficult, sometimes violent, um, sometimes contradictory stories that we read in our sacred scriptures? And mm -hmm. how did those sacred scriptures gathered by community, held by community, lead that community to the person of Jesus? And so... Really, that is a, it's very much sort of the core animating idea of Commons Church is what would it look like to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus and what would a community formed around that look like? Now, do we do it well? Well, in moments we do and in moments we don't, but that's what we're reaching for anyway. Yeah, yeah. When I think one of the cool things as someone who's kind of observed what you've done from somewhat of a somewhat of a distance I know I think I mentioned in um, my first like contact email that um, some of my youth after they graduated um, they came and as they were exploring different churches um, they ended up coming to Commons Church and so I was able to come in contact with some of what you guys were doing through through them and their their experiences um, listening to some of your sermons and some of the materials that you've put out um, one of the cool things is that in your engagement of wrestling with the scriptures, there's a great deal of openness to engage with 
sources like biblical criticism, um, to engage with the contributions of academics, and and to take these things that can often reside in corners of journals and and integrating them into into your conversations. All right, and I guess this brings us to kind of the core of the conversation here is one of the sources that you've you've drawn on is the work of the French anthropologist and theologian uh, René Girard. I was wondering if, um, maybe just as an introduction to those who haven't, um, some of the people listening to this will be familiar with Girard. Um, others, he's he's a new, uh, a new name. Um, but maybe if you could give a little bit of an introduction to kind of like who he was, what makes him unique as a thinker, and I guess how you came in contact with some of his his writings. Yeah. So, I mean, in the bigger picture, I think what you identified, I'm really um, honored the way you frame that because it's so much of what we try to do at Commons, which is to be intellectually honest, to take all of these critical tools, but then find ways to synthesize that with living out the way of Jesus in our normal lives. So, I mean, I I do have some academic work and, and a lot of it is around Gerard and stuff, but I think, I think really what I have to offer to the community of Christ is the, the ability to sort of synthesize that and make sense of those things and make them accessible. Because you're right, so much great stuff is out there, but it's in journals and it takes decades to filter down to commentaries. And then it takes another decade to filter down into pastoral books. And then decades after that, before it gets into the pulpit. And we're trying to shorten that, that time span a little bit because, because there's great work. Now, Gerard is, a and we can talk about why I'm so fascinated by him, but he, he's quite an interesting thinker. Um, a bit of his background is he's, he's actually not a theologian, a trained theologian. He ends up writing mm. theology, but he's trained as a historian. He studies in France, uh, studies uh, Second World War history, comes over to the U.S., and uh, there's an opening to teach, but they need someone to teach French literature. And, and he's a French guy with a Ph.D., so they give him this job teaching French literature. And and he gets into this, but but he starts working with... You know, these famous writers, Proust and Camus and all these things. And he starts getting really fascinated by that. And he starts recognizing um, themes that he sees coming up in, in literature, not just in French literature, but in all literature. And he starts developing these ideas about what these writers are doing. Not that just that they're telling good stories, but they're tapping into sort of a larger human meta-narrative. You know, people will be familiar with that language. Um, you know, if, if you're into postmodernity, you know, Leotard described postmodernity as incredulity toward meta narratives. One of the critiques of Girard is he's he's almost too modern because he really believes in meta narratives. He believes in overriding stories that define all of us. So, you know, if you're a hardcore postmodern, you might have some trouble with Girard. But um, but he starts recognizing these things. Then he starts going, oh, well, what other stories are out there? And he goes to religion. And he starts realizing, oh, the same stories are embedded in religion as well. And so he starts writing about that. And then eventually he starts recognizing that as a French guy, he's going to have to deal with Christianity eventually. He's, he's an atheist or an agnostic at least, and he's never really engaged Christianity. So then he's like, I'm going to have to do that. So he gets to Christianity and ultimately has a conversion to the way of Christ, which is really beautiful. But his core ideas that he recognizes first in French literature, then in all mythology, and then in Christianity are, are a couple big ideas. First, that what drives us is desire. We want things and we go after them. But that as human beings, we don't really know how to want things on our own. All that we really know how to do is to imitate each other. 
And he uses the term mimesis for this, which is, which is Greek, um, the idea of imitation, so where we get the idea of a meme from. Uh, but he sees human beings not knowing how to desire anything directly, but only to see the, the desire in another and then to want to imitate that. So the, lang or the, the um, example I've used before is if you see me drinking a coffee and you see me really enjoying that coffee, you're like, oh, coffee must be good. I'm gonna, I guess I want a coffee now. And maybe you've never had it, and maybe the first time you drink it, you're like, this, is, this tastes awful. It's, it's bitter, you know, it's, it's acrid. But that guy really likes it, so it must be good. So I'm going to drink more, and I'm going to learn how to love this thing. And that's what's happening. And as long as there's coffee to go around, that's great. We're all imitating each other. We're all doing this. And he says this is what really allows us to be human. It's where mm -hmm. we get language from. You make a sound, and you point to that thing. Then I imitate that. Well, all of a sudden, now we have a shared language we can work from. Our desire, everything is about us imitating each other. We learn to walk by imitating each other. We learn to be human by imitating each other. Now, all of that is good when there's all kinds of coffee to go around, but eventually, uh, you know, not enough coffee grows and now there's a shortage. And what happens? Well, now I've fully triangulated all of my desire, not onto the goodness that I saw in your experience, but onto the thing that you're drinking. And now when there's not enough to go around, I want that thing. And that puts me into conflict with you. And his theory ultimately is that this is what stops proto-homo sapien or proto-humanity from ever developing societies. Because we come together based on our imitation of each other, but eventually we come into conflict with each other. And so we have to separate. And he argues that this is, this is essentially why if you go back to Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon or just any of the sapien uh, groups before Homo sapien, we never see groups gathering larger than family or tribal units. But at some point, and so that's his first big thing, is the whole, whole idea of desire and mimesis. Second big thing is that at some point in the human story, we discovered fire. And for fire for him is not just like fire to cook our food, but it's, it's the fire of what he calls the generative scapegoat mechanism. Mm. So tension rises up within the group. And the scapegoat mechanism is the ability to focus that conflict on one person in the group, make them the scapegoat for the tension that's arising in the group. And then when we cast that person out, that could be literally in violence killing them. It could be in a religious system where you cast them out as a sinner. But what that does is it brings peace to the group because everybody's allowed to release their tension onto that one scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And what he says is that all of human history and all of human mythology is ways of encoding this into our thinking. That this is what happens. We imitate each other. We come into conflict to each other. We release that conflict by picking on someone. And so mm -hmm. he will talk about, you know, you, you put two kids in a room and there's, there's a hundred toys. The first kid will pick up one toy and start playing with it. Immediately, the second kid wants that toy. So we see it right from a very early age as a kid. But then you can also see it in kids on a playground where you'll see, um, you know, the two, you know, in his language, alpha male boys that are the, you know, the most popular, the most athletic. And they're in conflict with each other. What's the first way they, they the first thing they do is they pick on the weakest kid and they let the tension that's rising between them as they compete with each other and they try to imitate each other. They take that out on the, on the youngest or the smallest one and they pick on that kid. And it, it allows the group to cohere together against that outcast. Another example I've used sometimes is, it's a, it's a joke, but it's actually really instructive. 
in Canada, um, you know, you have Leafs fans and you have Flames fans. I'm, I'm from Toronto and Calgary, right? And they hate each other until you bring an Oilers fan into the room. And then we both hate them and we're okay with each other, right? Like as long as we both have an enemy, it's like we can set aside all of our conflict. And this is really the, the two things that Gerard stumbles upon and starts to write about is um, human desire and imitation. And then the ways that we release the conflict that's created through that, through the generative scapegoat mechanism. And then later we can talk about how he gets into Christianity and sees that as the inversion of that story and why he comes to Christ. But that's, that's a fun stuff too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, um, this leads us into, into more of the like core ideas that he presents relative to Christianity that we'll interact with. But, um, one of the things that you've said relative to Girard is that you believe him to be one of the most important thinkers for the questions that the church is going to face, um, in the 21st century. And, um, it, it could come across as a bold claim, but I think it is a compelling one. And I, I want to spend the rest of our time kind of fleshing that out relative to to some of his key ideas. We've got a couple or a list of list of general topics that we can kind of have conversation with and we'll see see how many we get through. Um, and we'll have room to meander and, and flow throughout that. Um, so maybe as a, as a precursor, let's talk about myth and the uniqueness of the gospel. Um, because as you mentioned, uh, Gerard's engagement with Christianity was sort of an inevitability. He's like, I've, I've, I've gone through all of this other literature. I've engaged with myth. I've engaged with historic religion. I'm going to have to wrestle with this as, um, as a French thinker, but just a thinker within, within the world. It's unavoidable to engage with, at this point, the world's largest religion. And one of the things that he says in the intro of or one of his books, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, he says, to most of us, it goes without saying that the similarities between mythology and the Gospels play into the hands of religious relativists. That is why Christians have always denied or minimized their importance with disastrous results. I argue that these similarities should be boldly explored. Far from threatening Christian uniqueness, they provide the sole basis upon which it can be made obvious, unquestionable. So could you maybe speak to that a little bit, uh, the role of myth within Girard's work and um, how his understanding of Christianity emerges out of that? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that one quote. Um, and he's he's building on a lot of his ideas and, and how. So I see Satan Fall Like Lightning is one of his later works. Um, mm -hmm. And so he's in that book, he is building on uh, like decades of, you know, developing these theories and now relating them to Christianity. But um, what he's essentially arguing there is there are uh, narratives that are embedded in the human story. What makes us human essentially is this, this ability to imitate each other, which inevitably leads to conflict, which inevitably leads to scapegoating. And what he's arguing here is that we should then expect to see that in our, in our novels, in our narratives, in our religion, in all of our myths, we should expect to see those things coming up over and over again. What he's going to argue about Christianity is that Christianity is going to play into all of those narratives the same way every other religious system does, but at the last moment, um, it's going to subvert the story. And this is what, um, this is one of the key things that you have to understand that, that I, I maybe skipped over a little bit in my introduction to Gerard is one of the key things is the scapegoating mechanism. So uh, when you turn your attention towards a scapegoat, 
that only works when it's hidden from your view. So mm. if you and I know that we're only picking on, you know, the, the person sitting at the next table because we're trying to diffuse the tension between us, it doesn't work anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's silly, it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, so it has to be hidden from our view. What he's saying is that Christianity is trying, the story of Christ is trying to bring that out into the open. So it's playing into the scapegoat mechanism, but then at the last minute, it's trying to open your eyes so that you can see it for what it is. Whereas every other story, every other myth, every other religious system is actually playing out that scapegoat mechanism in real time. Christianity is sort of opening you to it so that you see it. And then, you know, sometimes people think Girard is quite pessimistic. And to be fair, Girard comes of age in a period sort of post-Cold War. Mm -hmm. So... Gerard and Chomsky and all these guys, I was having a conversation with Scott, who's on our team, who has a PhD here in sociology, but a lot of these thinkers, it's like they're, they're steeped in cynicism. Like, it doesn't matter what we do, eventually the world's going to end in a, in a nuclear uh, apocalyptic explosion. And, and there are moments when Gerard is very pessimistic about that. But there's also moments in Gerard where he'll say things like, um, once our eyes are opened to the scapegoat mechanism, that has now infected the human story and like a virus that it will spread throughout human history and inevitably the kingdom of God will come to the earth because it will overcome our ability to keep the scapegoat mechanism hidden from ourselves. So, mm. you know, and one of the things you have to understand with Gerard is he doesn't do a lot of straightforward writing. He doesn't write books, he does interviews and then people transcribe those interviews and they publish them as books. So. It's a little hard sometimes to understand early Girard, mid Girard, late Girard, where he's coming from. And he contradicts himself all the time, you know, again, being very cynical sometimes. But also, he's got this idea that now through Christ, our eyes have been opened to the scapegoat mechanism. That's what Christianity was for. And that is now embedded in the human story. It can't be stamped out. And it mm. will eventually infect all of us. And it will eventually save all of us. You know, like mm. if you're going to talk in the words of Jesus, like a mustard seed, it is now growing. And whether whatever we try to do to stamp it out or keep it contained, we can't anymore. It, it will eventually grow to, to create room for the birds of the air, everyone to find shelter in its wings. So that's what mm. he's talking about there is that the similarities between Christianity and every other myth, religious system, novel, story, movie you read are there because that is the human story. What you hmm. need to look for is the ways that Christianity is going to twist the story at the last moment. Hmm. I think this this brings us into kind of the subversion that's built into the scriptural text itself and some of the expectations that we place on that. And I think this this taps into um, a lot a great deal of our questions today about what is it that we do with this ancient collection of materials, the the Bible. And oftentimes our tension is this attempt to reconcile what we see as this disparity between the violence of a vengeful God and then this narrative of a God who is also love and reconciling all things to himself. And this is something that you engage with in your uh, master's dissertation looking at Revelation, which if there's, if there's any text within the Bible that contains contradictions, it, it has to be, um, or we have to consider the book of Revelation within that. Um, but maybe can you speak a little bit to the nature of, of that project and maybe some of the significant things that you discovered in the course of your study as you were looking at a text like uh, the Apocalypse of John and reading that through the lens of 
kind of this framework of reading the scripture that's presented by Gerard? Yeah, so let me, let me back up for a couple of things to gather them up and then I'll talk about Revelation. Uh, but this is what you what you've outlined is exactly why I think Gerard is so important for Christianity going forward is I think I think a generation ago, one of the difficult questions was how do we reconcile this loving God with the violence of the Hebrew scriptures? Mm-hmm. I think today the question is how do we reconcile this loving God with the violence of the cross? Um, mm. people people are not people were predisposed already to assume, the goodness of the God of the New Testament. But that was only because we had this Christian worldview built into us. And Mm. so it slowly became okay to question some of the violence in the Older Testament. It was less sort of on our mind to question the violence of of the New Testament. Now that we're actually really legitimately becoming post-Christian, it's like everything's up for grabs or everything's at least open to interrogation. Mm. And this is where Gerard becomes really important because Gerard gives us a lens through which we can have a truly non-violent God all the way throughout the story. And I think Mm. that's what we are all reaching towards. And I think if we really do want to have a God who is love, I don't think the descriptions of um, love that would be anything less than a child would ascribe to are useful anymore. Like people used Mm. to say things like, oh, that's just a human perspective of love. The real perspective of love is God's perspective and therefore it's good. Well, any child can look at some of the things that are ascribed to God in the scriptures and say, that's not loving. Like we know that's not. What Gerard is saying is is that Jesus in his death on the cross is not a good sacrifice that allows God to forgive us. Hmm. So all this sacrifice and scapegoating, scapegoating comes from the Hebrew scriptures, it's from Leviticus, like the goat that they put their sin on and sent out. Gerard sees that happening all over. He sees our sacrifice, uh, even when we bring sacrifices to God and kill an animal, that's a form of scapegoating. Hmm. But he sees this not as a good, but as, an, but as a, a divinization or a sacralization of the core human experience, right? Mm. We're always looking for a scapegoat, so now we just, we just turn this into a system. Because we can't go around murdering people all the time. We have to find a better way. So instead, what we'll do is we'll create a system where we'll, we'll murder a goat, and we'll, we'll make ourselves feel good about that. But he sees that not as a good that God needs, and he sees hints through it all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Mm. You have Isaiah saying, guys, I don't, I don't think this is really what God's interested in, all our festivals and all our praise and all our things. You see, you know, Hosea saying, you know what, I don't think God really cares about any of this stuff. I don't want sacrifices. I don't want burnt offerings. I want something deeper. Mm-hmm. Those things are supposed to be leading you to it. So he sees Jesus not as such a good sacrifice that God didn't need any more sacrifice, He sees Jesus as the sacrifice that finally opens our eyes up to the horror of what sacrifice has always been. And here's here's where it becomes really important that Jesus is that sacrifice. Mm. Any other sacrifice, any other scapegoat in human history, we can always find a reason to justify our violence. If it's a goat, we justify it because of our sin and, you know, we we depersonalize that. If it's another person who has sinned against the community, we cast them out. We can always find a reason to say, oh, well, this person deserves it in this way. An example mm. I used is this. In society now, in, you know, in the last couple of decades, not as much now, but in the decades after 9-11, we would scapegoat Muslims. They're the, they're the problem with society. They're violent. Well, as absurd as that is to map onto every Muslim you meet, 
we can always find an example of a violent Muslim that allows us to justify that kind of prejudice. Yeah. The Jesus character is the one who, in the words of Gerard, owes no violence or no debt to violence. He refuses to give in to violence his entire life. He refuses to give in to violence even to the point of death. And therefore, at the moment of our worst expression of violence, Jesus turns to us and says, you don't know what you're doing, therefore I forgive you. Hmm. You think that you're taking out you know, your, your violence on me because I'm a bad guy or because I've challenged your systems, but you don't really understand what you're doing. What you're doing is perpetuating the scapegoat mechanism that allows you to diffuse tension within yourselves, in this case, between the Jewish ruling uh, uh, religious establishment and the Roman Empire. We're allowing that relationship to ease its tension by taking our violence out on a scapegoat. But because in that moment, Jesus owes no debt to violence, still turns to us with forgiveness. We have no way to justify it. And in Gerard's eyes, the scales mm -hmm. fall from our eyes. We recognize our violence, including our sacrifice for what it really is. And then we turn to Jesus in the way of Jesus. So what that does for us is it allows us to see the movement. We don't turn on the Jewish story and say, oh, it was bad. No, because the Jewish story had hints of this all the way along. And the Jewish yeah. story needed a systematizing of violence that was less worse than the violence of scapegoating a human being or sacrificing a human being. So the Jewish mm -hmm. story is a, a, an objective good. It's, it is the movement and the, the will of God enacted in human history that is moving us towards the eventual um, point where we would let go of our need for sacrifice completely. And what we see in Jesus is that God never needed sacrifice, just as God always said, who mm -hmm. needed sacrifice? We needed sacrifice. We needed sacrifice to feel like we were forgiven and to release mm -hmm. the tension so that we could form religious communities. Mm -hmm. Now in Jesus, what we can see is we can see God for who God really is. Not a God who needs blood sacrifice, not a God who ever needed blood sacrifice, but a God who allowed us to need blood sacrifice until we were ready to let go of it all. And this gives us now a framework to recognize the beauty of the Hebrew scriptures, to see the ways that God was present in human history, but to also move forward worshiping and following a thoroughly nonviolent God who, mm. who ascribes, who turns all of that violence of the scripture back onto us and makes us take responsibility for it, including the violence directed against Jesus. So the, the violence we see in the cross is never God's violence. It's our violence. Mm. And when we own that for what it really is, then we can move forward in new ways. Then I can begin to see the ways that I scapegoat, not just Jesus, but I scapegoat my neighbors or I scapegoat people who don't think about Christianity the way that I do or you know, any of the myriad of different ways. And I begin in classical Christian language, now a process of sanctification, which is about slowly allowing this new vision of Jesus to infiltrate and infect the way I see everything in my life, which means mm -hmm. I, I need to start changing things like my economics, things like my relationship with my neighbors, things like my relationship with other religious faiths, all of these things, I find new ways to move into them. And I think that's what allows us now um, in a more critical, I, I mean, um, not, not critical and negative, but critical in that, that um, critical tools, we have a society mm understands, even if they're not trained in it, we understand a hermeneutic of suspicion. We understand how to use critical tools to read ancient texts. 
people are going to do that to the Bible, whether we want them to or not. Girard gives us a lens through which all of that critical reading of the Bible is now um, not something to be feared. It's actually something that allows us to lead ourselves to Jesus and the ultimate revelation of who God is. So this mm. is both why Gerard is so important for where the church is going and how the church continues to tell the story of Jesus in a post-Christian, post-critical world. And also allows the beauty of the Jesus story to still resonate with people in a very profound way and influence mm. us in the way of Jesus. Now, when we get to Revelation, part of my work was saying, okay, so how do we interface Girard with the full testimony of Scripture? Girard is not a biblical scholar, neither New Testament or Old Testament scholar. So one of the things in my opening chapters that I demonstrate is um, there's Girard doesn't have the same convictions as like evangelicals would about the Bible. So when mm -hmm. Girard comes across something he doesn't like, he just says, oh, that's, that's mythic thinking finding its way back into the Bible. And he doesn't have a real problem with that. Um, he's not a biblical scholar. He's an anthropologist come theologian. So it's fine for him to do that. One of the things I show in an early chapter is that one of the passages in Isaiah about the suffering servant, mm. uh, Girard looks at that and just says, ah, you know what, that's just mythic thinking. Um, I show that when you work with biblical scholars, uh, actually Girard's ideas are much more embedded even in those texts than he realizes them. Mm. So that work's been done. One of the things that hadn't been done in a, in a major way was looking at the violence of the New Testament, which is what I really think we start to need to address. Um, I think, well, I'll say this. Christians critiquing the violence of the Old Testament is really important. The way we do it sometimes gets really close to anti-Semitism, or at mm -hmm. least to supersessionism, right? Like they yeah. didn't get it because of Jesus we do. Um, it's important yeah. work. The thing is, Jewish theologians have been doing it for years. They have been critically reading their text and finding out ways to deal with the violence of their text for years. They don't really need us to do that. We just need to listen to them better. However, mm -hmm. the New Testament hasn't really been reckoned with fully in the same way. One of the most violent texts in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And Gerard never dealt with it, not, not really directly. Ironically, Gerard mm -hmm. talks about apocalypse all the time. But yeah. he uses that in the clinical Greek terms of revealing, right? So yeah. the death, in the death of Christ, in the cross, there's an apocalypse. The, the veil is torn back and we see God for who God really is. We see ourselves and our violence for what it really is. Ironically, though, he never deals with the apocalypse in the New Testament. So that's where I came at it. And I said, can we take Girard's work and his theories and can we apply them to Revelation if we look at what biblical scholars who study Revelation have done with the text and give us more context. And that's mm. what I really tried to do, was interface the ideas and the theology of Girard with the work of better biblical scholars, um, like um, Schusler Fiorenza or Adela Yarbo Collins, or you know, a myriad of, of biblical scholars that have worked with Revelation. And that, that's what I was trying to do. Hmm. What are a couple examples that come to mind in the course of your study of really interesting or beautiful ways that um, reading through this Girardian lens enabled you to see things within the text or, or unveil elements of the beauty of the gospel that um, perhaps can be obscured when we just um, are encountering the surface of, of violence within, within something like Revelation? One background and then one example here. 
um, when you start dealing with revelation um, at a critical level, one of the things that, you know, a, a myriad of scholars will acknowledge is that revelation is doing one of the main things revelation is doing is interfacing different genres together and mm -hmm. twisting them. And it's in the twist that the writer is trying to make their communication. Um, so revelation is not just a straightforward apocalypse from the apocalyptic genre. There's mm -hmm. tons of apocalypses out there. The apocalypse of Enoch, Adam, Abraham. I quote all of them in my thesis at some point, I'm sure. Um, the apocalypse of John, John uses that genre, but does different things with the genre. And what I, and a lot of, this is not unique to me, a lot of biblical scholars will say, the writer of John is trying to write a nonviolent text. Mm. That's trying to show our violence for what it is and say there's an alternative here, and that alternative is Christ. Well, I think that fits so perfectly hand in glove with what Gerard did at a meta level of the human story. And mm. I, I was just a, a little bit surprised that nobody had done some of that work. And don't get me wrong, I'm not the only person, but nobody had really engaged at that level. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I thought they fit together really well. So example here would be the moment when Christ returns in the yeah. sort of climax of Revelation. And this is a verse that gets um, trotted out, pun not intended there, because he shows up on a white horse, but um, yeah. it gets trotted out. Um, I'm gonna have to use that, I'll write that down and use it as a joke later, but um, it gets trotted out all the time to talk about, hey, Jesus was all lovey-dovey when he was here the first time, but when he comes back, it's gonna be different. Yeah, there's a just as a as an aside, there's this great SNL skit called Jesus Unchained. It's a brilliant, brilliant inversion of that because essentially the concept in the skit is that Jesus rises from the dead. And as someone who's back, he's like, well, you know, I came peaceful, but then there's no more Mr. Nice Jesus. And then it's just a full Tarantino riff. It's it's glorious. Like, I mean, that's hilarious. I'm going to look this up for sure. The irony yeah. is that's actually a theology that a lot of people hold. I think like Mark Driscoll has been quoted, maybe the most prominent example where he says, um, you know, you have Jesus meek and mild within the gospels, but then in, in Revelation, he comes riding on a horse with a, with a tattoo down his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth to demolish the people who rejected him. And that's sort of like this rallying cry for a more masculine or not wimpy Jesus, or, you know, I don't want to worship a Jesus who I could beat up, um, things like so that. So now you've got Gerard and you're looking for ways that Jesus is going to subvert the story, right? Um, Jesus goes to the cross. We're assuming sacrifice is an objective good. At the last moment, Jesus forgives us for sacrificing him. And our eyes yeah. are open and we realize, oh, this, this was bad. We shouldn't have done this. We never should have been doing this, right? Well, here's the same thing in Revelation. We, we get to the climax of this battle between the armies of God and the armies of, of the red dragon who represents the devil. Um, first of all, how, is the, how does the devil get to earth, the great red dragon? He's overcome in heaven in a battle between uh, the angel Michael and his forces. And how do they overcome him? By the testimony of their witness and mm -hmm. of their martyrdom. So they overcome the devil through their martyrdom. Then the devil is cast down to earth. He gets in this battle. Okay, the battle's going to happen on earth. Right at the climactic moment, Jesus shows up. He's on a white horse, but he shows up in a robe that's dipped in blood. And he has a sword that comes from his mouth. Now, when you 
set aside your expectations of those images and you read them in context. First of all, Jesus arrives at the battle dipped in blood. Where does that image come from? It comes from Revelation 4, which is the lamb who has been slain. The, mm. the writer says, I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's expecting a warrior in the, in the vein of David. I yeah. turned and I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain. The writer mm. right there is telling you, we expect a warrior, but when we see Jesus, it's nothing like we look like. So if you hold that, now you come to this image. Okay, we expect Jesus to show up on a war horse, but what does he show up on? He shows up mm. on a horse with his robe already dipped in blood. That's his sacrifice. Mm. What is his sword? What is his weapon? It's the sword that comes from his mouth. We've already been told the way you overcome the great red dragon is the testimony of martyrdom. So Jesus comes covered in blood. His only weapon is his testimony of his nonviolent death. That's mm. how he overcomes the forces of Satan in the world. That's how he overcomes the alignment of Satan and the powers of the earth. Mm. You know, one of the other things you'll see in Revelation is a lot of these images I, I mean, people talk about Antichrist all the time. First of all, Antichrist doesn't show up anywhere in Revelation. That, that's from the letters of John. It's a different thing. But the images that do show up, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, um, the harlot, these are images that very clearly, once you understand the biblical studies side of it, are representing principalities and powers. Mm. And principalities and powers are not, you know, spooky, you know, demons and angels. Those are systems and structures. That's the Roman Empire. It's, it's the economic system of Rome. It's the mm. religion of emperor worship. These are the things that Jesus is overcoming. And the way that he's overcoming them is through the power of his nonviolent testimony. And so mm. even in Revelation, I, my, my argument is every time you come to that moment where it looks like it's going to be a violent end, if you read the next chapter, what you're going to see is a subversion of that. Jesus mm. overcomes through his nonviolence. He comes through his sacrifice, you know? And so right at that moment, it's, a, it's like all of a sudden, Gerard is like this perfect lens to access what John is telling us in this book here. Before we jump into um, atonement, you mentioned principalities and powers, and I think this would be an interesting point to talk about the idea of the Satan within uh, Girard's work, particularly in terms of the way that in in Girard the Satan, in a sense, well, he references this um, in I believe it's Mark three where talk where Jesus responds to them and or to the those who are accusing him of casting out demons by by the name of Beelzebub, and then uh, Jesus responds by saying. Um, if, if Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom has come to an end. And Gerard picks up on that in the sense that Satan is behind the systems of, scape, of the scapegoat mechanism. And as nations or powers play into that system, then he is enthroned as the ruler of the world. There's a lot maybe there that we could play with in that, but um, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. So what, what Gerard is arguing there is that Jesus is recognizing that um, the way to defeat Satan. Now, so first of all, let's talk about Satan. Gerard mm -hmm. very much personifies the Satan character. Um, and I think he sees that as important. Um, mm. I don't think Gerard believes in, in a being Satan that's opposing Jesus. And mm -hmm. yet he believes that that storytelling 
technique is really important for us because mm. if all of our principalities and powers get depersonalized, then we don't interact with them at the same visceral level. Mm. And what, what Gerard feels like is that we need to have our, we need to have the veil pulled back. We need to have our eyes open and it needs to be shocking, right? Mm. Because you can't, um, th this is why apocalypse is so important to him. You can't, gently pull someone out of the illusion that they're living in. Mm. You have to get them to the moment at the moment of climax, he says, at the moment of violence is what he calls it. And at the last second, you have to pull back the curtain. Mm. So that's why uh, a Satan character is really important to Gerard. As mm. much as he doesn't sort of believe in, a, in an objective person, devil who's floating around in the world, he very much pushes back against the idea of just depersonalizing that into evil, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. He wants it to stay that way. But yeah. um, what he thinks Jesus is doing here is recognizing that that evil Satan personified does not want to rule the world in the ways that we think. Mm -hmm. Satan doesn't want control over us um, in terms of being uh, worshipped or in a visible way. Um, Satan wants the power for himself. And the way mm. that Satan does that is as soon as we start to begin to notice Satan in our midst, you know, then Satan whispers in our ear and is like, you got to get rid of that guy. You yeah. know, and when we turn on Satan, even if it really is, you know, an embodiment of something that's evil and satanic, when we turn on it violently and we cast it out, then Satan is like, perfect. Now I'm back in control. Mm -hmm. And so this is what Jesus is saying is constantly over and over again. As soon as we begin to notice something that's wrong in our midst, our tendency, aided by Satan, is to violently turn on that thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be uh, pointed here, I think we see this in our politics today. You see this on the left sometimes where yeah. we notice things that really are evil. They're wrong and they need to be changed. But the way that we do that is to turn violently on a person and mm. decide this person is a bad person and they're our enemy and we're going to cast them out. Well, as soon as you've done that, you've just reinforced the idea that violence is the way that the earth moves forward and violence mm. is the way that history progresses. And Satan doesn't care whether you're a nicer version of someone who still believes in the power of violence or not. Satan yeah. only cares that you ultimately believe history is defined by violence. If you were to borrow Nietzsche's terms, it's that both Apollonian and Dionysian violence are both both beneath the throne of Satan. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, we could go into that one in a lot of depth because Girard um, interacts with Nietzsche a lot and is in love with Nietzsche and credits Nietzsche for bringing him back to Christianity. Uh, but ultimately, um, Girard sees... Um, Nietzsche is wrong in the end. So Nietzsche, you know, sees this conflict and sees the ways that we kill our hero and then we resurrect that hero and we just keep the cycle going. That's what sparks Girard's imagination around Christianity. But Girard mm. sees the resurrection of the Christ not as a reification of the same story, that now we get to kill Christ again. He sees the resurrection of Christ as the thing that ultimately frees us from the cycle. So mm. he loves Nietzsche. But in the end, you know, differs from Nietzsche in that. And that's a whole other area of Girard that you can get into that's really fascinating. But yeah, mm -hmm. the basic idea here is you can't free yourself from violence by using violence. You can't free yourself from the grip of Satan by using the way of Satan. 
Mm. And this becomes, you know, really important for me in terms of shaping a community at a pastoral level. Mm. You can't make a Jesus community using the systems of violence in the world. Mm. If you scapegoat people, it doesn't matter what you think about your theology. If you cast out LGBTQ, if you cast out people whose theology is too conservative for you, if you, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you do, as soon as you cast out, then you've given in to the same things. You yeah. have to continually go back to the narrative of Jesus, which is this giving of yourself away and this opening of the boundaries to your communities. Mm. That makes your community vulnerable because there are people who will abuse that and there are people who will um, take advantage of that. But ultimately, mm. this is what Jesus shows us, is that that vulnerability is an inherent part of the way we free ourselves from the cycle of violence in the world. And mm. so, you know, when we care for people who abuse us, um, we have to be really careful with that and really careful with that language of that because we don't, we never want to endorse uh, abuse and we never want to create systems that are going to allow for more of that in the world. But mm. at the same time, it's this, it's this self-giving nature of Christ that allows us to overcome that narrative. And the way, you know, this isn't Gerard, but the, the, the way that I go back to here is, is Walter Wink's work when he talks about nonviolent direct action. Mm. That we always call out abuse. We always call out injustice in the world. We never take the passive route of just saying, oh, well, we can't fight that with violence. Therefore, we just have to let it continue in the world. Mm -hmm. No, we, we call it out, we stand up against it, even if that means putting ourself and our well-being on the line. But we do that um, specifically to oppose and point to something better. And mm -hmm. that is, that's the really sort of tricky balance in there of following the way of Jesus that will overturn a table, yeah, um, but will never um, turn that violence against the person who's behind that table. You know, mm -hmm. and to figure out what does that look like? What does it look like for us to stand up to people who are abusing people and taking advantage of people and to do everything we can to stop that without making that person the object of our wrath, mm -hmm. right? Because we're following the way of Jesus. So the wrath is not, you know, if we talk about the wrath of God, the wrath of God is never directed at us. The wrath of God is directed at our godlessness and wickedness that we do in the world. Right? Mm. God is angry about that. God is angry about the ways we hurt each other. God is angry about the ways we hurt ourselves. God's not angry at us. God is mm. trying to find ways to free us from all that. And so mm. we have to sort of keep that in mind all the time. We're going to stand up to injustice. We're going to flip the table. We're going to oppose that. But we're not going to turn our violence against that person. So how mm. do we have that righteous wrath and anger against systems that abuse people? without turning it into that. And that's what's going on in that Mark passage. Mm -hmm. Jesus saying, look, you want me, or you say that I'm, I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan. That's what Satan wants to happen. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you think that, or you think I'm doing that, that would just be giving in to Satan. So I refuse to do that. I refuse to cast Satan out. Instead, what I will do is I will invite Satan in, in a sense. And then in that moment, Satan has no power over me. And then in that moment, Satan is no more a threat to me. Invite, invite Satan in in what way? Well, I mean, again, it depends on what type of embodiment of Satan we're talking about. Yeah. And that's where it gets really tricky in terms of practical examples, right? Because I think um, the ways that we invite Satan in is to say, I refuse to fight you violently. 
Right? And again, I'll go back to Revelation here. That mm -hmm. that big moment, I think it's in Revelation. So in Revelation 10 is the end of what I would call the second cycle. We begin the third cycle. And the, the important phrase there is, now comes the time to destroy that which destroys the earth. Right? So that's, that's what's mm -hmm. happening in Revelation. The earth's not being destroyed. God's creation's not being destroyed. God never wants to destroy God's creation. God does want to destroy everything that destroys. And the way that that happens right after that is there's, a, there's the, a war in heaven between the angels and the great red dragon. And the great red dragon is overcome by the testimony of nonviolence of the angels. And that's yeah. the same thing that I think we're seeing. When the angels refuse to fight Satan, Satan has, nothing, Satan has no power in heaven. And so Satan yeah. leaves heaven because Satan has nothing to do in heaven. And it's that same way when we invite Satan into our community, not in the sense of, hey, you get to run the show, but yeah. in that or sense, sense of, we're not afraid of you anymore. Yeah, or not inviting him in in the sense of like this personified entity. But again, in terms of those systems, those patterns of being human that uh, play into or enforce the rule or his rule. And when we refuse to fight them in the way that they want to be fought, right? Because mm -hmm. every system wants to be fought in a certain way. That's how, yeah. we, that's how we develop our social cohesion, right? Everybody needs an enemy. Everybody needs an antagonist. Every protagonist needs someone to rail against. And mm. when we refuse to provide that, we suck all the power out of all of these unjust systems in the world. And then mm. we can stand up to the system. We can flip the table. We can do whatever we need to. But we refuse to give in to villainizing the person behind that thing. And again, mm. that's super hard because some people are villains. I mean, they, they really, you know have cultivated all of the worst of what it means to be human in their lives. Mm. But we ultimately, I think, have to see them as a victim of, of the system that has taken over their ability to control their lives. Mm. Um, now, it doesn't mean we endorse what they do. It doesn't mean we give them a pass. Yeah. We have to be able to humanize them in that way and see them as a victim even of that, which is so hard for all yeah. of us to do, for me to do, for any of us to do. Yeah, yeah. As an aside, a, a really good book that deals with this, and I think fairly timely in light of really the investigation of, of Ravi Zacharias. And I mean, over the past number of years, there's been numerous high profile cases of abuse within within the church. And I think timely in that sense is um, a book that's been put out by uh, Brad Jerzak and uh, Paul Young um, called the called the Pastor and. Um, I just listened to the audiobook last night, and we're going to be able to have uh, Brad Jerzak on the show um, later on in in April. And um, but one of the ways that he engages with this, and in a very very challenging way, is um, drawing along that tension of acknowledging abuse, but also acknowledging the way that abusers themselves often come from abusive contexts and approaching this idea of real like and and having real language for sin being able to say there are things that are evil there are things that are dehumanizing there are things that corrupt and break and damage and destroy but our solution to that can't ever be turning on that person and saying that we are able to solve this problem or we're able to bring healing and reconciliation um, to those who have been harmed that can never occur when we simply flip abuse back on the abuser um, and I think it's, it's engaged in a very, very good way, uh, within that work. Um, just as an aside, all, all redemption of sin has to be 
redemptive for both parties. Now, mm -hmm. can we do that all the time here in this world with three people? Of course not, because everybody has to want to engage in that process. Yeah. But that is that is what we're being called to in, in the Christ story, is this idea that justice is redemption for both. Now, redemption for the abuser doesn't look the same as redemption for the person who's been victimized, but yeah. there is redemption there. And, you know, the, the Zacharias case is an interesting one because think about, it's not perfect, but think about um, when these accusations for decades kept coming up to the organization. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine in that moment the reaction by the organization, by Zacharias, for these people who didn't see the full story properly, but probably saw that as an attack of quote unquote Satan. Here's yeah. someone who is, you know, attacking a good work in the world or something. Probably yeah. what the way that you get to a story as horrific as Zacharias in the end is by a lot of those um, warning signs along the way being treated not as the gift that they should have been, mm -hmm. but as a Satan that we needed to cast out. And so a woman yeah. comes forward with her story and speaks openly, and we push her away and we make her the scapegoat. She's the one who's the problem. When yeah. you do that, you inure yourself to the, to the voice of the Spirit of God that is being offered to you in, in the testimony of that witness. And every time mm. you push that person away, every time you scapegoat them, you make, you, you make it harder and harder for the truth of Jesus to, to get through to you. But you imagine... Mm if they had taken that first instinct to see that woman who brought an accusation, not as a Satan who opposed them, and you said, we're going to invite this person in, we're going to welcome their story, even if they didn't believe it, right? Because mm -hmm. understand it from their perspective. But imagine yeah. they saw that person not as an enemy, but as a person that we need to welcome this in, we need to hear this person, we need to hear this story, we need to embrace this story within our community. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't believe it, what would have happened could have been a very different story, you know, a decade down the road, two decades down the road. So yeah. I think it's that instinct to push away from anything that feels threatening or feels scary that oftentimes turns the voice of God and the voice of the Spirit of God and the gift of accountability into an actual, it turns us into an actual Satan that is now perpetrating abuse and harm in the world. And I think mm. it's it's a really interesting example of of that type of a thing. Yeah, from here we've we've spoken a little bit about atonement, and I think here'd be a good way to jump into it because um, I think well, there's interesting ways in which Gerard takes terms like original sin and our our deliverance from it, and remove it kind of from the assumed narrative that we might have within um, an evangelical context where we, you know, we reimagine the Genesis story in a literal sense, and it's it's relative to taking a forbidden fruit, and then we need to be um, delivered from that. But then also, I mean, that translates into. Um, our primary mode of engaging with the atonement is through the penal substitution, this idea that when we've disobeyed God, God is, is angry, God, um, and God needs to be appeased. He's this consuming fire that, um, you know, he needs to see blood in order to, be, um, in order to be resolved towards us, in order to welcome us in. And there's this idea of violent, God demanding violence in order to be made, or in order for us to be made right with him. You've mentioned earlier this, this need to think critically, not just about the Old Testament, but about the violence within the New Testament. And I think many of the criticisms that have been raised towards this default mode of engaging with salvation is, you know, the allegation of divine child abuse, that 
for somehow for God to punish, for God to inflict harm, for God to, the Father to witness the suffering of the Son allows him to welcome us in is something that is not only deeply troubling for us, but I think something that was very deeply troubling for uh, Gerard. And so I'm wondering, in what ways might engaging with Gerard allow us to have a a reimagination of this that is supposed to be good news? Yeah, so I mean, you used the line divine child abuse. Um, that comes from Rita Nakashimi Brock, who, you know, was bringing these these critiques to bear at the at the academic level decades ago. And that's exactly why I think Gerard is becoming so important is because that same critique has now now filtered down to to a popular level. And I think it's a really important one. Um, there's a couple of things that are important there is when you talk about penal substitution being the default mode, I think it's really important for us to name. It's the default mode for the past, let's say, 300 years. Mm-hmm. It's not the default mode for the ways that we've thought about the atonement during Christian history. And I yeah. think this is a really important and freeing thing for a lot of evangelicals. Yeah. to realize that they've been uncomfortable with this idea, but they don't know a Christianity outside of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. And you can say to them, hey, look, actually, for 1,600, 1,700 years, we had never even thought of that framework for thinking about the atonement. Even yeah. going back 1,000 years was when we came up with sort of that substitutionary satisfaction theory from Anselm. Before that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't even have that framework. And then once you start to understand that, you start to understand that, oh, okay, our ways of understanding atonement are contextually framed at our moments in history. Mm. So the reason Christus Victor is probably the dominant way of thinking about the atonement or the at-one-ment, how are we made at one with God, is because you've got a Christianity in those first 400 years that doesn't have a lot of power. Well, what's the most yeah. important thing about the death and resurrection of Jesus is that Christ overcomes the violence and death of the world. That's how yeah. we're made at Christ. Christ overcomes that, we overcome that. We are caught up in Christ's victory. Okay, yeah. so after that, you know, then we become, you know, in power, we move into the Middle Ages, we've got new things, like, you know, we gotta rethink about this thing. And Tom comes along and he looks at this sort of Lord-peasant relationship and this idea of honor is really important. And he's like, oh, well, that's a great way to think about God. You know, God's honor is offended when we sin. So God's honor must be satisfied. And so Jesus now comes along as the God-man to satisfy, you know, God's impugned honor. And now we can be brought back into relationship between, you know, sort of the feudal peasants and the Lord. And that gets transformed again when we have penal substitution. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on penal substitution, but it's important to understand this. And I am forgetting the name right now. It's a great book about penal substitution. But anyway, the point is you are moving out of, the Protestant Reformation has happened, but what's happening in the 17th and 18th century uh, politically in the world is the emergence of nation states. Mm -hmm. Um, No longer just these sort of empires, but nation states. And what's the defining characteristic of of nation states? It's legal systems essentially, right? There's now citizens, there's now a legal system that gives you your certain rights in the world. That's what's happening in human history at that time. Well, what's what's the logical way to then think about the idea of God and our relationship to God? It's, it's viewing it through um, that framework of you broke a law, now restitution needs to be made in front of the law. That's what the penal substitutionary model is. It's, it's saying when laws are broken, a penalty needs to be paid, 
you can't pay that penalty. Therefore, Jesus comes to pay that penalty for you. Mm-hmm. As much as I think it is harmful, and as much as I think it is an incomplete way of understanding the scripture, contextually, at that moment in human history, I actually think penal substitutionary atonement is a profoundly beautiful and appropriate way of thinking about our relationship to God. Because mm-hmm. that, that's at a time where we're thinking about our relationship to the state. We're thinking about what it means to be a citizen now rather than just just a peasant on the Lord's land. You know, we're thinking about these things. We have a responsibility to the law. We have a responsibility to be a good citizen. Oh, we have a responsibility to make right our relationship to the God around us. So hmm. that in that framework, I can see penal substitution as a good, a human good that helped us to make sense of our relationship with God. Yeah. Now, though, we're at a point in human history where we're starting to rethink what laws should be. Laws are not just objective measures of right and wrong. We realize that actually laws have deeply problematic bias built into them. It's what we're learning with Black Lives Matter. It's what we're learning in Canada when we look at you know, our treatment of indigenous persons on, on, on this land that we now live on. Uh, We're realizing that laws are not simple and black and white and clear. They are embedded with bias all the time. So we need to have a way. Now, you can say, okay, but God's laws aren't, and therefore it's okay. Mm -hmm. But culturally, that's not going to be an effective way, you know, just at a purely evangelistic level to tell the story because people aren't going to think about laws in that clear black and white sense anymore. We understand bias, and so we need new ways. So Girard comes along and gives us a better way to think about those things. Mm. Now, what I think is important about penal substitutionary to hang on to is the substitutionary part. Mm. I don't think you can get away from substitution in the imagination of the biblical writers. It's there all through the Hebrew scriptures. It's there all through Paul. What I don't think is there in the scriptures is the penal part. Mm. Christ absolutely comes to be our substitute. But the substitute is not taking our place to absorb the wrath of God as much as to take our place as the scapegoat that we think we need in order to be cleansed and forgiven. Mm -hmm. So Christ comes at that moment where we're ready to substitute or we're ready to sacrifice something and Christ substitutes himself into that place, becomes the substitute that we didn't know we needed and our eyes are opened by this. So Mm -hmm. what happens in that moment is yes, Christ absorbing violence. Yes, Christ becoming sin. That's a, that's a, Paul, a phrase, a Pauline phrase, right? He becomes mm-hmm. sin for us. Well, think about that in Gerard. What's our sin? Our sin is sacrifice, right? Our sin is thinking that we could be cleansed by putting violence on another. Christ mm-hmm. literally becomes that sin for us and allows us to be freed from it. So very much Christ is a substitute, but he's not taking the penalty. He's actually taking the violence that we create, right? Mm. He's absorbing that. He's absorbing the sin of the world. He's absorbing the violence of the world. And then in the climactic moment, what does God do with that? God says, you're forgiven. And then Mm. after that, what does God do? Christ is resurrected by the power of the spirit. And in that moment, it's like we begin all over again. Now, mm. we don't have to go too far into other theologians here, but you know, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who's another theologian that I love, in, in the, when he talks about the cross, he talks about that moment where Christ absorbs all of our violence. God endures something that God has never endured before. 
which mm. is the separation that violence creates, right? God has never been separated from the sun. Now, because the sun becomes our sin or absorbs our violence, God is separated. So God learns something new in the cross, like mind blowing. Yeah. And then by the power of the spirit, the sun is resurrected and reunited. And now what does God experience for the very first time? Reunification. And in that moment, human history is now made sacred because mm. all of the things that we experience, our separation and our reunion with each other and with God, now that is part of God. And in that moment, God experiences things and it becomes beautiful. And I think that's that sort of Christ becoming our substitute, absorbing our violence, forgiving our violence, and then through the power of the Spirit, being resurrected through the impact of our violence into God again, absorbs mm. all of us in that story. And Gerard gives us this really neat framework to see the beauty that's there in penal substitution, the beauty in Christus Victor, the beauty in even that satisfaction of God, where God has been impugned by the ways that we've injured God's creation. Mm. And now in the resurrection, God is made whole in a new way. All of that comes together in this sort of view of what's happening on the cross that I find profoundly, not just insightful as a theologian, I find profoundly beautiful as a follower of Christ. Mm. And it allows me to, I think, I think most theologians would tell you this, no, well, most good theologians will tell you this. No theory of the atonement is complete without the others. We need that mosaic. Mm. For yeah. me, Girard is almost dependent on all the other views in a way that none of the others are dependent on each other. And mm. he sort of forces you to find the beauty in all these different views and, and pull them together in a way. And I think mm. that's why ultimately, I'm going to argue, Girard is going to become so important for us is because he allows us to see all the beauty. He also allows us to look at things like you mentioned original sin in a more critical anthropological view. What's our original sin? It's not eating an apple, it's scapegoating each other. Adam, yeah. you know, Eve eats an apple, Adam eats an apple. What's Adam's first thing? Ah, oh, she made me do it. Like, like the right there in the thing is we start blaming each other. Adam and Eve or uh, Cain and Abel, what do they do? Well, one gets jealous, right? Because one offers a, an offering to God and God is really happy about that. And the other one's like, I wanted that praise, right? Yeah. So triangulates that onto his brother, thinks, well, maybe I have to kill my brother and then I can be as liked as that. I mean, all of this stuff is right there in the text. Gerard would say, you know, like open your eyes and see it for what it is now. But there's yeah. your original sin, is that scapegoating. Now, for Gerard as an anthropologist, he's also gonna say, because of that, that's what makes us human, is that imitation and that mm -hmm. scapegoating. So when you are born, you are now born into that world that this is how you see the world. So therefore, you are going to play that out in your life. It's not that, frankly, mistaken Augustinian idea of original sin, mm -hmm. that it's passed down to us genetically. It's yeah. much more like the Eastern idea of ancestral sin, where you are born into a sinful world, therefore, you are shaped by that sinful world and you will sin, right? Because mm -hmm. the, in the Western tradition, it's you are already sinful when you're born. In the Eastern tradition, it's you are shaped by a sinful world, therefore you will sin. But you don't bear the guilt of Adam. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's absurd. Like, you know, you don't bear that until you being shaped by a sinful world have lived it out. Well, Girard's yeah. concept of original sin is very much that thing. You cannot be human without being shaped by scapegoating and mimesis.
However, who can? Christ, because Christ is fully divine and Christ comes from outside the story. Therefore, Christ knows no debt to violence. Therefore, Christ at the moment of his death can actually live out the nonviolence that he's been called to. None of us as humans mm. could actually do that for ourselves. And this is where Gerard is a very orthodox Christian that says like, original sin means that none of us could accomplish that moment. The divinity mm. of Christ means that only Christ could accomplish that for us. But the accomplishment is not appeasing or propitiating God. The accomplishment is taking all of our violence and our sacrificial imagination upon himself and then offering mm. back to us forgiveness. I think this gets at some of, I think that the objection would be that this makes salvation subjective in the sense of, you know, it's something that we just, we witness and then we become enlightened as we're educated by, I don't know, a new source of wisdom, but there's nothing that's objectively changing within the world. I think that's uh, categories that Greg Boyd uses when- Yes, he does, on, on Gerard fictional is. warrior god. That's his critique of Gerard. Maybe, how do you see, how do you see Gerard going beyond this? So going beyond this idea of like, Jesus comes and just changes our minds or just educates us, gives us a new, you know, at times it can sound oddly um, liberal or progressive. You know, we just become enlightened in this liberal and progressive way. How does, how do you see Gerard responding to this and saying that what is happening, this salvation, this deliverance from the scapegoat mechanism goes beyond education and is actually changing something real within the world or giving the capacity for real transformation in terms of our structures of culture and and who we are and understand ourselves to be as human. Yeah, so I dealt with Greg's critique a little bit in my thesis, and he probably won't remember this if he ever hears it, but I did have this conversation with him in Washington. We were together and I challenged him a little bit on some of his views of Girard because um, his, I, like I forget the line exactly, but he talks about Girard is good as, as far as Girard goes, but he doesn't go far enough. Mm. I think Girard does, and I think Girard actually addresses uh, Boyd's critique. But I'll say a couple things here. First of all, I don't think um, Boyd's categories of an objective and subjective atonement are nearly as important as he thinks they are. Mm. Um, he wants it to be something, um, objective changes in the universe because of the cross. Right? Mm. I think that gets, now Boyd is an open theist, so I have to grant that to him because um, that's an important qualifier here. But I would argue one of the problems with substitutionary atonement is that it gives at least the impression that the atonement is about changing something in God. Right? Mm. God needs this so that God can love us. Um, Zizek you know, is famously furious at this whole idea of penal substitution because he's like, well, if God needs a sacrifice in order to forgive, then God is not God. God is just the name that you've given to the most powerful being that you know of. Mm. But somewhere above God is someone who put a rule out there that said, well, God needs this in order to forgive. That's really what God is. Yeah. You know? And so whenever we have a, whenever we frame the atonement in a way that seems to suggest that God needs something or something has to happen in order for God to forgive, I think we've gone against, you know, one of the, the core ideas of this idea that, that God is actually the most powerful being that there is. Mm. Um, and so... First of all, I don't think anything changes in God in the cross. I think the cross is about changing us, right? Mm. So in the, in the pure sense of does something objectively change in the universe, I'm going to say yes, 
but not in the sense of something changes about God where now God is freed to forgive us. God doesn't mm -hmm. need anything to forgive us. God can forgive us whenever God wants. That's what it means to be God. So I refuse absolutely the idea that God can't forgive without a sacrifice. That's, that just seems absurd to me. Um, unless you have this, this uber God above God that told God that's the rules. Mm -hmm. and so that's the first thing. So, I, so I'm not totally on board with the distinction between them. Yeah. But that said, what I think Gerard would say in response would be um, exactly what we talked about before, which is this idea that this is not just an enlightenment because this is this is an, an apocalypse or an unveiling that never could have come from within the human story. And I think that's mm. the piece um, that really uh, sets Girard apart from the way that Boyd, and Boyd's not the only one, there's a number of different theologians that have critiqued the same thing. I think that's what sets him apart from it, is he's not saying that Christ is just a, a, a wise example that shows us the blind spot that we had. Because mm. Gerard is saying, because mimesis and desire and scapegoating is what allowed us to move from proto-human to homo sapien, there is no such thing as the, the escape from that narrative coming from within the human story. Mm. It has to come from outside. It has to be divine. Now, it might not be a change in the universe or a change in God. It is a change in us, but it comes purely from outside of us to us through the Christ. Mm -hmm. So that would be my, my pushback to Boyd is one, I'm not totally convinced there needs to be an objective change in the universe mm -hmm. um, the same way that he does. But two, I would say this is not just a wisdom that emerges that now we become aware of and our eyes are opened. It's a wisdom that frees us from something that no human could ever free us from because that sin and that scapegoating is what it means to be human right mm -hmm. you know and that's where again i think at a critical level it's it's important to understand the ways that gerard sees this playing out at a at an anthropological formation of the human species level mm -hmm. like he fundamentally believes that without mimesis desire and scapegoating you don't have humans you mm. still have a bunch of Neanderthals running around in, in family tribal units. What makes us human, including our ability to form societies and do theology and think about a God, right? Because language is part of that, yeah. comes from our sin of scapegoating. So it's, it's the gift that makes us what we are. It's also the reason that we need a God to step into the story from outside, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, and in, in many ways, I think when I first started reading Girard, um, I think that was the thing that was most attractive is even if there were a great deal of elements. And at that point, I mean, I was in the early stages of my biblical, uh, studies degree. And so there's certain things where you see him interacting with the text that as a biblical, uh, study student, you're like, well, I don't think we can do that. That just seems too good to be true. But I think the what was most attractive though, is being able to draw out those things within, um, I think the writings of Paul as an example or a particular example in my mind um, is say reading in, in Colossians or Ephesians in particular, and this idea of a new humanity that we're redeemed, we're redeemed from previous systems in order to become a new kind of human. Um, 
And that, that was something that came through a lot with my youth and they probably got tired of it. And in the course of teaching was like this reconstructed idea of what it means to be human, a new, a newly constituted society. Exactly. And this is, I mean, I find it, I find, obviously I find Gerard compelling, but I find it so compelling to shift our understanding of original sin from, hey, we were fully formed humans in a garden and then we sinned and everything went bad. Mm. Like actually... The sin of the garden, like people will ask, what about the sin of the garden? Like, why did God put a tree there? Like, why do we need to do that? Well, for Gerard, that sin is both the thing that helps us become human and the thing that keeps us at a distance from God. So mm. now that now that that tree in the garden is not a stumbling block to say, oh, well, God's a bad planner. Mm. It's the realization that actually this is part of God's movement of the human species forward is to mm. give us the thing that could have us create the sin that it would allow us to move the story forward that would allow us to one day be freed from it. And that's actually a, a very Jewish reading. There's Jewish readings of the garden that see, um, they think of Adam and Eve as, as a representative of humanity in terms of the relationship of child and parent. And that mm. there needs to be a pushing away and there needs to be a drawing back in for mm. that relationship between parent and child to be fully realized. And so the, the gift of the ability to choose to disobey God was the gift of God that gave them the freedom to push back so that God could pull them forward and we could have that fully realized relationship. Well, Gerard mm. sees it in a different way, but he opens up a lot of possibilities in that same thing. And so all of a sudden now all of human history becomes um, part of the process that leads us toward that. And that's where mm -hmm. I think we really are talking about, again, an objective change, a new humanity. There's, there's no, prior to Jesus, there's no way to be human without scapegoating. Post-Jesus, mm -hmm. you can be homo sapien without the need for that. Now, is it hard? Do we reach it? No, of course not. I mean, that's, that's what it means to follow the way of Jesus and to continue to do that blindly stumbling our way along and seeing through a glass darkly and not being aware of all the ways that we miss the mark. And yet, that possibility is now there for us um, that something mm. can be different. And when that is fully realized, then we have that already but not yet. We have a kingdom that is a human civilization on the world that has been freed from the sin that made us human in the first place like that i mean that's so profoundly beautiful well and it's it's incredibly beautiful as a subversion of if you want to take the the founding temptation in genesis as you take of this and you will become like god and you see this reflected in the temptation of Jesus in there's this corrupted vision of who God is that then becomes that model of desire. I want to become like God in terms of that which is powerful, that which is freely enacted will, that is a coercive force that is able to terraform the world according to my desires in order to reach out and grasp the things that I want. And you have this flipping of that vision of who God is in a way, the unveiling of that expectation. This aversion is you have Jesus comes as the emptying one, the self-emptying one, the um, showing the divine nature as kenosis and self-donation. And then in, in an incredible subversion, we're invited to become like God. The very thing that if, if you were to look at our, our corruption as, as adopting violence in order to become this vision of, of God as power, we are invited into a new model of imitation 
if you could frame that on or map that onto the idea of discipleship of Jesus saying, come and follow me, imitate my way as I imitate the father. We're brought into a new form of imitation based upon a renewed vision of who God actually is that then causes us to become the actual image of God that we were intended to be. It's profound. Absolutely. And, and this is the, and we didn't talk about this, but Gerard does not see mimesis as a negative. He hmm. sees this as, as foundationally human. The question is, can we learn to imitate something directly rather than triangulating? And that's mm. what it means to follow Jesus because Jesus imitates the Father and we imitate Christ. But, but God, or when Jesus lives in the world, he imitates the Father directly, not through mediation mm. that allows him to triangulate his, his um, or, or a human corrupted imagination onto God because Jesus comes from outside the story, the Christ comes from out the story, then Jesus is then able to imitate the Father directly. And that's mm. what we are learning to do, is actually to follow that pattern. One of the, the phrases I've used before is, um, you know, I, I love the way you're framing that, the idea of, of the apple and, and, well, the fruit and taking that fruit and trying to become like God. But I think the, the, the thing is, when you have a little bit of power and a little bit of sovereignty in the world and a little bit of choice, you imagine that the only thing that could be better than that is more of it. Mm. And so the mm. more you get, the more you're consumed by the pursuit of more. And then somehow we like we map that onto God, that the thing that God w must want most is complete control over everything. Mm. Well, God already has that. So when you don't have a portion of control, the way I imagine it is the only thing that you're interested in is not more because you have it all. The only thing you're interested in at that point is to give it away. And mm. so our first step of imitation of God is the triangulated version where we see God's power and we're like, we want that and we want more of that. Yeah. When we fully come to see God, we realize that, oh, infinite power is not consumed with power the way that we think it is. Infinite power is only interested in offering that away to each other. And this mm. is where I think the sort of Calvinist concept of the sovereignty of God, to, to, to borrow language from Boyd that we took, go, it's, good, it's good as far as it goes. But the problem is it doesn't really understand what infinite power would, or infinite sovereignty would look like. Mm. Yes, God is infinitely sovereign, but the only kind of sovereignty that wants sovereignty and holds on to it is the kind that has a portion of sovereignty. Infinite sovereignty, if we really believed that, would just be there to give it away and to offer it back to us. And so then it's the weakness of God that offers God to us, that is mm. willing to be humiliated by us, that is willing to be you know, sacrificed by us, that's where we actually see the infinite power and control and sovereignty of God, because it's God who, who doesn't care about the same things that we care about. I think moving from atonement into the idea of evangelism, this becomes really interesting in asking the question of how this reoriented or clarified vision of who God is and what God has come to do in the world through Christ, how does that change our good news in the world? Mm -hmm. So first of all, uh, I think when we talk about the good news, I think the good news is um, we no longer need to be slavishly committed to the idea of scapegoats. We, mm. You don't need an enemy 
to be a good person. You don't need something to die to be forgiven and welcome. Actually, what you need to do is to recognize that this is who you are. This is, you are already loved. You are already welcomed. And then that can begin to, to work and change you. So the language mm. we use in commons a lot of the time is um, often in Christianity, we talk about salvation by grace. We mm. forget about sanctification by grace. So mm. we're saved by grace, but we're also transformed by grace. We're not transformed mm. by trying harder. We all know that. You know, we all know we can't become more like Christ by trying harder. We can become more like Christ by grace in our lives that tells us, actually, you don't need to keep trying. You don't need to keep pushing. You know, just just rest in my goodness, rest in my love for you, and you can mm. be freed from the things that push you in negative directions. So there's that, there's that idea that, first of all, the world is being saved. Mm. Um, and the good news is you are part of that right now. You are being saved. The world is being saved. The quicker you become aware of that and you recognize that in life, the more you can experience that right now, here and now. That's the sort of sales pitch version of it. Um, mm -hmm. that. But I think also um, there's two things. One is people will criticize that and then say, okay, but therefore, why would anyone turn to Christ if, mm. if the world is being saved? Well, I think part of it is, is you are offering people the freedom from this compulsion that they have to constantly look for an enemy mm. um, and to constantly measure their sense of forgiveness against their ability to offer the right sacrifice or find the right enemy. You know, mm. Um, mm. You, you can be fully loved without ostracizing your gay child, you know, mm. like at a, at, a, at a really blunt level. Yeah, um, yeah, you are loved and fully welcomed, even though you have been told that you have to push away from your daughter who's a lesbian. No, you don't. You can embrace her. You can love her. You don't need an enemy to be loved. So first of all, mm -hmm. that um, second is to realize the profound freedom that comes from not feeling like you need to live up to uh, these expectations of God all the time. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that the way of Christ is easy. That doesn't mean the way of Christ, you know, there isn't a sterizo or like a, um, a, a need to be steadfast and to move forward. Like the lying, you know, I preached on that word a while ago because we're, we're moving, we're following Jesus' movement toward Jerusalem during Lent. But, mm. but we need all of that. But it is, it is the commitment of living out the freedom that we've discovered, not this sort of push-pull of, knowing that we're saved by grace, but also feeling like we need to live up to that grace that we've received. Mm. It's actually allowing ourselves to lean into it and to, and to want it more and more in our lives. So there's that piece. Um, mm. The other one is, I think at a, I, I don't think it, apologetics is a fruitful discipline when it comes to evangelism anymore. Mm. I don't think it's how people perceive the world in terms of these clear boundaries. To me, apologetics tries to take evident truths in the world. And honestly, a lot of the time, it just feels like a, a semantic game where we map that onto faith somehow. Mm -hmm. And we try to say, you know this about the world, therefore, let's see if we can map this onto faith. Um, I, I just don't think it works for people. I don't think it's all that particularly helpful. Mm. When you can give people a compelling reason for how we ended up in this position, mm why the same motivation that pushes children to fight over a toy 
when there's lots of toys in the room is the same motivation that motivates, you know, um, uh, Nazi Germany to scapegoat Jews during the Holocaust is the same motivation that turns us on, you know, liberal or conservative neighbors. And you start to recognize, oh, the same things are at play all in the world. And there's freedom from that that's offered in the story of Jesus. Um, mm. You don't need to do this performative angst anymore. Um, mm. You don't need to do this, you know, performative ostracization of people and us them anymore. Um, mm. You can actually profoundly imagine a God who is the love that you know you deeply want. Like all of us that see these things in God that don't look like love, like we all wrestle with that tension and we, we try to put it out of our minds, but you don't actually have to do that anymore. Mm. Um, and, and I truly believe this, you can also find a challenge that's worth giving your life to, mm. because this is the problem with the sort of like new agey Jesus is like, everything's good. And everything belongs. It's yeah, yeah. And that's all the end of it. That's nice sounding. I think it's compelling. It's not the kind of thing that's going to motivate me to give my life to though. Right. Mm. It's going to, it might make me feel, you know, good for a bit, but what we can do with this way of thinking is you have the same inclusivism. You have the same narrative that feels good at the deep level of our soul but it also becomes the kind of thing that you want to give yourself to and work hard in and contribute your life to, you know, everything from the way that you interact with your neighbor to your politics, your economics, yeah. like all of this now gets subsumed in this, this commitment to the way of Jesus. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly compelling evangelistic pitch, <laughs> you know, if you want to call it that way to people. Yeah. Um, and to know that I can be part of offering people a way out from the violence they feel is necessary mm. to me feels like something that's worth giving my life to as a pastor mm. um, that I want to tell that story. I want to invite people into it, not because I'm trying to save them from God, but because I'm trying to save them to the life that Jesus offers them mm. and the way that everything and everyone is going to be saved. Eventually the quicker that somebody can experience that and become part of it and dedicate their life to, you know, whatever small corner of that. I mean, that, that, that feels like a worthwhile pursuit to me. Maybe as a, as a final question or a way to wrap this up, um, as you consider the future of the church within maybe even your specific context within Calgary, um, but then also I think just the church in Canada in general, what are you hopeful for? Yeah, I'll give you a tangible example in terms of community. So Commons is um, a community where we have, you know, I mentioned a couple of times, but the LGBTQ issue in the church and in theology and, and how do we make sense of these things? And Commons has moved towards, you know, what, what some people would consider an affirming posture in terms of welcoming LGBTQ couples fully into community with no qualifications. Mm -hmm. So that's for marriages, that's for leadership, that's for fully welcoming them into our body. But what I think is important about the way that we have embraced that is framing it from the perspective of how do we embody things in community, not how do we articulate our beliefs. Mm -hmm. So at Commons, what we've said is everyone is welcome here. Everyone will be treated the same here. That means 
that if you are okay with that approach, you are welcome here, regardless of what you think your personal convictions are. Mm. So to be a member of Commons, you do not have to be affirming of LGBTQ marriages and relationships. You just have to be affirming of the idea that those families will be affirmed and welcomed and loved equally to you. Mm. And, and that can be problematic in lots of different ways. Um, there are certainly people within the LGBTQ community that have been so injured and hurt by the toxic ways that theology has been held that I think they want to be in communities where they know everyone is going to be on the same page completely. I honor that. I, I think that's beautiful. I think it's really important. But I also think that we need communities where people who see the world differently are rubbing up against each other and sharing meals with each other and listening to each other's stories with a larger commitment to embracing each other, living with each other, learning from each other, rather mm. than necessarily their agreement with each other. And so choosing to come together on that commitment to not scapegoat, to be mm. together, to listen to each other, rather than the commitment of what we agree on, I think, um, and again, I totally understand the context for different people, but I think ultimately that's the example, that's the community that Christ is calling us into. Now that's one example, but I think you can pick all kinds of ones where I don't want commons to be a homogenous theological community. I mm. want different ideas about God coming and mixing and melding because I believe in the mix of that, what we're actually going to find is, first of all, we're going to have a more robust, complete imagination of the divine, sure, but more than that, what we're actually going to do is we're going to embody the way of Jesus, which ultimately, mm. to be blunt, is more important than our theology. Because mm. our theology is always incomplete. Um, I always think of, I, the language I use for theology is it's useful scaffolding, or it's mm. useful illusion, right? We're using language to talk about God. Like, how silly is that, right? Like, a God who is the ground of being, you know, the idea of existence. And you hear we're using language and metaphors and words and stories to talk about that thing. Of course, of course it falls short. Of course it's incomplete. Mm. But we need theology because it gives us scaffolding. It gives us frameworks. It gives us paths to walk on. But when our theology supersedes the way that we hold that theology in community with each other, I think it's already bad theology. It doesn't matter mm. how true it is. It's already, it's already missed the boat. So yeah. if we can hold our theology um, with conviction, but also with an open hand, and that can lead us into communities where we're going to push up against each other in different ways, and we're going to think different ways, and we're going to influence each other. But in the midst of that, we're going to embody a way of being together, the way of Jesus, you mm. know, which is the only way to God, then we're going to move farther ahead. And that's what I am really encouraged by. Um, in the formation of commons, in the ways that we began to live this out, um, all, you know, not fully, not completely. Again, that process of sanctification is an ongoing lifelong process, but mm. that's actually what I'm more blessed by and encouraged by is the ways we live things out rather than the ways we talk about things. Now, mm. I like talking about things, talking about things is the ways that we make things of things. So it's all interconnected. You know, just the same way that I worship Jesus, but I need to read the Bible to understand Jesus. You know, mm. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't worship Jesus without the Bible. I just mm. have to remember what the Bible's pointing me towards. And I think it's the same thing with our theology. My theology mm. is super important, 
by my theology is pointing me to a beloved community where together we're living out the way. And I see moments of that. Mm. That's probably the best I could say. But I see little glimpses of it and that gives me a lot of encouragement and it gives me a lot of um, energy to keep going and keep pushing forward. Well, that's beautiful. I think that's a, that's a great place for us to leave off. Also, my upstairs neighbor is, uh, is starting to vacuum. So I'll hear that in the recording presently. Well, good. A, a good clean floor is important as well. So It is. It is. Well, thank you so much for, um, for being on the show, for um, being willing to talk at length. This has been a fruitful and enriching conversation. Well, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it back at some point. So... Thanks everyone for joining us in this episode of The Canadian Orthodox. To learn more from Jeremy Duncan, you can connect with him on social media and through his website via the links in the show notes. We've also included a link to his thesis paper, a Girardian reading of violent imagery in Revelation, if you'd like to interact with his academic work. If you connected with this conversation and would like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts. We've got new episodes dropping every other Monday. You can help us promote the show by leaving a review and sharing on social media. And you can also connect with me on Instagram at I am Timotheos. Thanks again for joining us. We'll talk soon.